Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey there, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Happy Hour. I'm so excited for today's show for a handful of reasons, but one of them is because this person that's on the show today is actually a friend of ours. He's a pastor at my church, uh, someone that I respect and look up to and listen to and is full of wisdom and grace and so pastoral. And so you're in for a treat today because my friend and pastor, Ross Lester, is um, sitting down with me today to have a conversation that. It's an important conversation, and I want to encourage you to stick it out because you may think, I don't want to listen to this because this makes me uncomfortable. But Ross is the perfect person for this conversation. Do you mean to tell you why? Because Ross has only lived in America for three years, you guys. He is South African. So he is looking at what we see in America through a different lens than most of us. And it's why his wisdom and his encouragement is so timely for us today. Before I tell you more about our conversation, I want to ask you guys this. How many of you, you can raise your hand while you're walking or driving or doing dishes or doing laundry, I don't know. How many of you have gotten a copy of our newest book, Compliment? It is a book that my husband, Aaron Ivey, and I wrote together. It released just this month, and it's about marriage. And we are such fans of marriage. We believe that if God has marriage in your future, he wants it to not only be an example of the gospel, and it is, we get to use our marriages to show the world God's covenantial, unbreakable, unstoppable, unending love. It is so beautiful. We also think it can be fun. We think it can be thriving, and we think it can be one of our greatest gifts. And so we wrote a book about 10 things that we believe we can fight for in our marriages, things like loving each other and cheering for each other and serving and and fighting and forgiving and leading and following and sex and parenting and being on mission. And that sums up our book, Compliment. So if you've gotten your hands on it and you've had a chance to read it, man, one of the greatest gifts you could give us is a review wherever you bought the book. You bought on Amazon, you bought Lifeway, wherever you bought the book, if they had the capabilities to leave a review, we would be so grateful for your kind words. Uh, It helps our book get noticed more by other people who are looking for books on marriage. And so we would be so over the top excited for a review from you. One of the most recent reviews on Amazon from Grace, she said, I bought these as a gift for my husband and I to help us reconnect emotionally, spiritually, and they are wonderful. They're written humbly and in a way they can speak to us both without making us feel bad about the shortcomings in our own marriage. I'm excited for us to continue pursuing our marriage and the Lord through these books and excited to read both perspectives. Thank you, Grace, for your kind words about the book. Rhonda also said that the book is authentic, raw, thought-provoking. Yes, that's what we want it to be. She said, it's such a great book for anyone. You don't have to be married to read this book. Yes, that's what we want you all to know. She said she received so much from the chapter titled Forgive. It's so damaging to your relationship and yourself to have unforgiveness. I love how the authors include stories of personal struggles to make it relatable. Rhonda and Grace, thank you for your kind words. And man, I pray that these books bless you wherever you are in your relationship. And I pray the same for all of you guys who are listening. So there's that. Now today for the show with my pastor and friend, Ross Lester. Today we're getting his perspective on the world as a follower of Jesus who grew up overseas. Like I said, he's born in South African. In today's episode, we talk about the American church versus American culture and his experience of learning what it looks like to be a pastor in the States through this international lens that he has. Ross dives into the problem of Christian nationalism and he lays out 10 signs of it at play. 
I encourage you to lean in, to listen. This might feel uncomfortable to some of you, but I promise you it is going to be worth it for you to see these 10 ways that Ross talks about that we need to be addressing what Christian nationalism might look like in our own hearts and in our own churches. Like I said before, I feel like Ross has a unique perspective on church, what it looks like in America, because he has only been in America for three years And he himself has experienced some difficultness with speaking out against Christian nationalism that we talk about today. So guys, sit back, relax. I promise you, you're going to need a pen and paper. I'm just letting you know ahead of time because you're going to want to write these 10 things down. But here's what you need to know. If you miss them, we're going to put them up for you on our show notes. Go to jamieivy.com. Look for the show notes there. You'll find all of the 10 things listed there. Okay, here's my conversation with Ross Lester. Ross, welcome to the happy hour. Thank you, Jamie. What a privilege to be here. Uh, this is a privilege for me. So let me, I told everybody that's here in the room that I was going to gush on you for a minute. Oh, okay? gosh. So here we go. You are a pastor at yes. my church. Yes, ma'am. Not the campus I attend, but another campus. And you and your wife, Sue, and your two kids have been in America for three years. Uh-huh. And I just want to say you've been such a breath of fresh air. So I'm grateful for you at our church, the Austin Stone. I have heard that from so many other people. And so... Thanks, Jamie. That's too kind. So thank you. Your voice in the world, your preaching, everything. I'm just not a fan and I'll try not to be too much of a fan, but... Thanks. It's been a real joy to be here and it's been a fun season of our life. We're learning a lot. So yeah, what a privilege. Okay. So I already mentioned you're married, two kids, mm-hmm. but tell everyone how you got here. What have you done before you showed up in America? Mm. So I grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa, and lived there for most of my life. And kind of through the end of apartheid, which would be the kind of historic moment that everyone remembers and knows South Africa for, and um, had a had a great upbringing. One of uh, four Leicester siblings, and uh, had a very happy childhood with parents involved in the local church. And met my wife Sue in high school, and we dated on and off while we both tried to figure out our lives. And we both had a, a sense that at some point the Lord would have us in the U.S. Most of my family is kind of a diaspora all over the world, and so we sensed that at some point the Lord would have us in the U.S. And so when the call from the stone came, it just felt like the right call at the right time, and we felt like the Lord was leading us to make the move. So we did that three years ago with our two little kiddos, and it's been great. It's been challenging, but it's been great. So I recently, on an airplane, watched for the very first time Coming to America. Have you seen it? <laughs> I have, yes. Okay. So it was my first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I'm sitting here having this conversation with you, I'm recalling all the things Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall had to go through Coming to America. <laughs> Side note, I heard they're making a Coming to America too. I believe so. The okay. trailer's very funny. Oh, I need yeah. to go watch the trailer. Yeah. So in all seriousness, Coming to America, I know it's been difficult for mm-hmm. you and your family. And so... My question about it being difficult, is it just the American culture or has that also included the American church? You know, it's a strange thing for me because I'm a white South African, right? And so blend in in so many white evangelical American spaces. And yet there's this huge cultural gap both in American culture and what's normative, which seems small because we grow up consuming American media so I'm familiar with all of this stuff. But once you try to live in it, it's like, oh, this is this is really different. You do things really differently just culturally and societally. But then the American church has been very different as well for us in a few key areas, some of which we have loved and some of which has given us pause, some of which has brought grief. But yeah, so both culturally and in the church space, there are just some major gaps and there's great opportunities for learning. So that's how, what we've tried to do. We've just tried to be curious all the time and ask, hey, why do you think that? Mm-hmm. Why do you do that? Yeah. Help me understand that. And that's kept us kind of sane in the midst of it. You know, it's interesting because there's been a lot of 
grief that I've experienced in my own life over the past couple of years yeah. with things that I have seen the church here in America kind of hold on to and stand firm on as if it's gospel truth. And I think as you get older, I'm 42, and as I get older and travel the world and then also have friends that do church in the other parts of the world, I'm reminded constantly that what we see in America is not the church. You know, it is not the end all be all. And I have a friend who is constantly reminding me, she's saying, Jamie, the global church is alive and well, and it is doing great things. And in fact, I wish I had the stat here. I just read a book. It's called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, fan of hers. Mm -hmm. And I'll get the stat wrong, but she talks in there about how the church in China is going to have more Christians in the next 30, 50, whatever the stat was than even here in our own American culture. And so I hear things like that, and it gives me great peace, honestly. So you said there were some things that have caused you a little bit of pause. Mm -hmm. What are some of those things? I think how divided the church is, how entrenched American culture and political thought is in the American church. Now, it's good to have culture and political thought. Those are fine and good things. But how entrenched and how enmeshed they've become almost with orthodoxy. So in order to hold to what is prescribed as orthodox Christian thought, you have to have these cultural and political ideas, um, which I haven't come in with. I haven't Mm. grown up with. And so they seem very foreign to me. And I'm like, wait, you really think orthodoxy is at play through political thought? And so that's just been fascinating to me. And I've had to reframe pastoral conversations. I've had to start at different points with a whole different set of assumptions that we've had to learn as missionaries into the U.S., Missionaries into the U.S. We that's that's how we've had to see ourselves. <laughs> did you, side note, did you see the statement that J.D. Greer gave last week about the SBC convention yes. and the political stuff? Yes. I We can link to it in the show notes so you can see the whole thing. Um, I had a conversation with some friends about it, and I'm a fan of J.D. I like yeah. J.D., and I was like, thank you. Yeah. When you say you had to reshape conversations with people, how are you coming to that? Because you do have a different point of view as coming from an outsider, almost from American as a South African. How have you had to change some of those conversations? I've had to be more patient, more slow, and more inquisitive. So I've really, I've really just started to see myself as, you know, as James says, you know, being slow to speak and quick to listen and really trying to think through that and actually prodding people's worldviews like we would train an American missionary to go do Mm. in a foreign context. Hey, go figure out the idols. Go ask good questions of why they think that way. We would train people to go do that in Southeast Asia. I've been doing that in Texas (laughs) (laughs) quite a lot. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Why do you think that? And just starting from those points, instead of just leaving baked in assumptions to lie, actually provoking them, but not from a position of where it seems like it's provocation, from a position of trying to inquire and get people to inquire their own worldviews. What are you seeing the results of people? I would imagine you see two things. One, I would imagine that some people would be like, oh, I love and respect you and yeah. I trust you, so yeah. I am going to think about this. Yeah. But I would also imagine you would come up against a little heat for that. Yeah, Jamie, it's tough, you know. So I'm trying to be a faithful local church pastor. That's really what my call is. And so I'm trying not to go beyond those spheres. What I find is In the context of relationship, people really respect that. If Mm, they know you and trust you and believe they're loved by you. In the context of the public square, people hate it. And so I've actually pulled myself off all social media for a while because it's not the place where you can ask those kind of good questions without then being labeled like, oh, so you're a Marxist Mm -hmm. or, oh, so you're just progressive in your worldview or you're liberal in your theology. Like, no, no, I'm just asking some questions about society and still believe in orthodox truths from the scriptures, but just asking some questions about why we think this way. In the public square, 
where you have no relationship, it's always met with hostility, has been my experience here. In relationship, it's usually met with warmth. Not always, but yeah. usually. Yeah. yeah. Just the other day, I was having a conversation with someone who does a lot of immigration work. And she asked me, she said, Jamie, do you think that you can have good, healthy conversations online with people that you disagree with? No, she didn't ask me, do you think you can? She said, how do we do that? Right. And I said, I don't think you can. Mm. I mean, I really don't think that we have our value system in place where we can have those good conversations. So I'm so glad that you said it's those friend conversations. It's having those conversations one after another. Ross, I know something that has been in a lot of conversation recently in the past. Mm. It's been conversations for a lot, but I think it really got people's attention since January 6th is this idea of Christian nationalism. Yeah, We've seen it. We've heard it. We hear it talked about. Mm. I know you've been doing a lot of kind of diving in and trying to understand what this looks like. And I, again, coming from a missionary to America, I think you're the perfect person to talk about this. When you think about Christian nationalism, what does that actually mean? Because sometimes I'm afraid that people can hear those words and feel like we're attacking their faith. Yeah. yeah. And so <laughs> how have you dissected this a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, Jamie, we could get deep into this if you want to. We've been trying to do quite a lot of thinking about it. I mean, a couple of disclaimers. Firstly, I'm not a scholar. I'm a local church pastor and don't pretend to be a scholar, but been trying to read some of the scholars. I think it's dangerous when people present themselves as scholarly when they're not actually. So I just want to say that there are better scholars than me in this area. But secondly, I have something of a unique input in that I grew up under the most explicit form of Christian nationalism that we've had in world history in the recent past. Mm. So apartheid in South Africa was a Christian nationalist ideology. It admitted to being so. It said so willingly. I mean, the all-white elementary school that I went to was part of a system of government and education known as Christian national education. Mm. (laughs) We prayed every day. The scriptures were read every day. And then we were taught to treat people who weren't white as subhuman. Mm. And it was explicitly Christian, supposedly, in its ideology. So I've seen the most extreme forms of this, which is why I'm passionate about it and passionate about fighting against it. So I've tried to write a, a definition of Christian nationalism because I wrote about this a bit to our congregation at the church and got a lot of warm feedback, but also got our house tagged with a swatch sticker, which I can tell you about if you would like. Yeah, we're not going to just gloss which over was that. crazy. Mm-hmm. And so I've been trying to develop some better thought because I think clarity is a kindness. And so people have been like, oh, do you hate patriotism? Do you hate America? Like, right. No, I'm here. I've moved my family here. You know, My son's an American citizen. Like, I want good outcomes for the United States of America. I really do. But there's a distinction between patriotism and Christian nationalism. I think, in short, Christian nationalism is where you conflate the kingdom of God and its outcomes with a nation and its outcomes. And so you expect of your nation and you indeed reserve for your nation outcomes that are actually reserved for the kingdom of Mm. God. And so you make your nation the same as the kingdom. And then what ultimately ends up happening is a trade because the kingdom of God is hard to live by in terms of ethic. And so ultimately you subjugate the kingdom of God with its ethics, demands, and subsequent promises of blessing to the ideals of the country. Mm. And at some point you make that trade and you're not sure you've made it. But looking back, you can see, oh, I still think this is a Christian pursuit, but this is a national pursuit that actually in some parts is unchristian mm. and anti-Christian, but I'm willing to live with that trade because I've just rationalized it in my mind as the same thing. Can you give me an example of that? 
the Sermon on the Mount would give us our kingdom ethic, right? right. Our kingdom manifesto of how a kingdom should be run. But at some point in the pursuit of a Christian nation, you would start to say, blessed are the meek. No, that's not really our thing. Blessed are the strong, mm, right? Blessed yeah. are the dominant. Mm. Blessed are the militaristic. And we're willing to make that trade because it's good for our nation, even if it's not good for the kingdom. Got it. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Okay, I've been reading a lot and I've toyed with some ideas and a sociologist called uh, Samuel Perry, he offered uh, 10 observations to help you know if you're looking at Christian mm -hmm. nationalism. So mm -hmm. I've messed with those ideas a little bit, but they're mainly his. I've refined them a little bit if you want. Let's go. All right, so number one, as we've already described in the definition, it's that you see nation, in this case, the United States, but other nations have done this, mm -hmm. but you see nation as central and indeed essential to God's redemptive plans in the world. Mm -hmm. It's as if God has chosen this nation yep. as his primary means of gospel advance in the world. This then justifies views of like, hey, America first, right? right. And America dominant, even at the expense of others, because this is God's chosen mm. people for blessing and influence. And it feels good when you're an American. Totally. <laughs> but it doesn't feel good if you're Mexican or Canadian totally. or South African, you know, or Nigerian. Right. Because America always does come forward as like, we're the best and we will solve everyone's problems because God loves us. And I actually get, and here's where we need more robust conversation. Nations by their very existence all have this ideology as part of being a nation. I identify with this nation and I wanted to succeed over those nations, right? right? But it's when we start to confuse that with some kind of Christian ethic yeah. of, oh no, God said this nation over other nations. Then it starts to become dangerous. Like comparing America to Israel maybe. 
Well, that's actually going to be one of okay, uh, one of going. the ten yeah, for uh-huh. sure, yeah. for sure. So one of the ways we'll see that, just by the way, in the first one, this is interesting for nerds, but is in eschatology. So when people talk about end times, what uh-huh. I've noticed in the American churches, it's always tied to American politics, uh-huh. and I always ask the question of like, okay, why would all of this writing of John the Apostle and others, Daniel? be about this political moment and right. these political leaders and and not about anyone else in 2,000 years of redemptive history. Right. <laughs> Why are these guys? And the answer is, well, this is the most important moment. Mm. Why? Because we're the most important nation. Mm. So. You just see how it keeps going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Second one would be a very strong us versus them posture, right? So anyone who disagrees is seen not as someone different to be served, but as a cultural enemy to be defeated. And we see that from the church to unbelievers, but we also see it inside the church Mm. of like, oh, if you're progressive in your Christianity, you're not just different, you're an enemy, Mm. right? You're not orthodox, you're you're anathema, and you must be defeated. So third one would be that the Christianity that we describe is more obsessed with a culture than it is with Christ. And so then the whole thing becomes framed as a culture war mm. rather than as a call to follow Jesus. Yeah. Show me how we do that with culture. Well, it's really about dominating the world with, and in this case, particularly a, a view of a conservative ideology okay. that you've got to go with conservatism mm-hmm. and everything that frames it. Now, I'm conservative in most of the ways, yeah. not in some, yeah. but you've got to go with conservatism with everything that comes with it in order to be faithful to Christianity. Right. Even if that means like disobeying Christ in mm-hmm. some weird areas, yeah. right? So yeah. to obey him would be to be very progressive mm-hmm. in some areas, yeah. but conservatism wins the day yeah. rather than progressive. I, I think that we saw that a lot in this last election cycle and the one in 2016 as well. But I think we saw this in the last election cycle for sure of if you're a good Christian, you vote Republican yes, because that's the conservative party. Yeah. And I saw a lot of faithful believers speak out and say, I am a faithful follower of Jesus, and I am conservative in so ways, and I am pro-life, but there are just some things that I can't vote for. And I think that we saw a lot of culture wars, per to say, around that whole party. And, you know, I can see, I'm not a good historian right here, but I feel like this maybe came from like maybe the the 70s and the 80s when we had the whole- Moral majority. The moral majority movement. And it was like, I mean, I, growing up, I don't think that I would have ever heard of a Christian being a Democrat. Sure. And so that's what you're speaking yeah. to. With and that. you only have to go 40 years back and find that, uh, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats have actually swapped positions. Because on, my grandfather, my grandfather, who's been, you know, dead for almost 20 years, mm-hmm. faithful follower of Jesus and was a Democrat. Right. Years because ago. Because that would have been a pro-life position in the 60s. Yeah. Which is insane. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Number, Number four. four. So the culture that it desires then is often a lie. And I want to say this respectfully. But it will be a deceit of history, and when examined, it will often be linked implicitly or explicitly with segregation, oppression, and injustice against many, right? And so what you'll see is a panic in society today, and what do they want? They want to make America great again, Mm. okay? So I'm careful with that phrase. I'm not saying anyone who voted for Trump is a Christian nationalist. That's not what I'm saying. Let's just stop for a second and examine that phrase again. So when, right? When was it great? And so you have to hearken back to some 
other moment in history which has been covered up, right, and painted as way more rosy than it ever was. And so it ends up being a deceit, mm -hmm. right? If you want to go back, oh, the 50s in America. Oh, so while segregation was happening, so that was our finest moment? Mm -hmm. Is that what we want? Mm -hmm. Oh, no, maybe it was founding fathers. Right? Slavery? Mm -hmm. Like, so this was when we were great? And so, you know, it's a deceit. It's a ruse. I recognized this in South Africa. There was always this hearkening back to remember the good old days. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, it was good for you. Right. But we weren't good as a nation. Yeah. Uh, And let's not pretend that we Yeah, were. yeah. Not good for people of color or women here in our own 100%. nation. I mean, you know, and so, yeah. yeah. I've always wondered when I've heard that statement, make it great for who? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, and, next. And again, I mean, this is not a saying that anyone who, who has a desire to see America flourish. Right. A Christian nation. Mm -hmm. a different thing, right? This one really troubled me on January 6th, right? It will use iconography of the cross, mm. but it actually has a contempt for the way of the cross. Mm. And so you'll see icons of the cross and crucifixion, but the way of true life that it describes doesn't look like taking up your cross and following Christ in suffering and service. What it looks like is domination and strength and worldly might because laying down your life is for losers, right? And Christianity is for tough guy winners. I mean, Christian America is for tough guy winners. Mm. This is how we've conflated these things. Yeah. And then you go read the Gospels and you're like, wait, Total this doesn't sound at all. And this is why you'll see a bizarre collision of icons. You'll see crosses and gallows, you'll see crucifixes and assault rifles. It's this weird collision that was so disturbing to me on January 6th. It was so disturbing to me as well. And I know that you watched the video that I watched of the men in the chamber praying. Yeah. And I literally got sick to my stomach because a lot of the conversation that I would hear was like, well, these aren't actually Christians. These are not real Christians. And I watched that video and I thought, these men were using words where they have been trained yeah. in church, yeah, yeah. words I learned in discipleship classes, yeah. words that my children whose dads or pastors don't know because they haven't taken, you know, like yeah. discipleship and theological classes. Yeah. And so I was so, so very heartbroken by it. And I think that was maybe a wake-up call. That's why I mentioned January 6th. I feel yeah. like January 6th was when so many people, by God's grace, went, oh my gosh, yeah. I think that this actually is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, I want to be cautious. There were people there who didn't, you know, identify with insurrection. Um, there were people there who were generally praying for some kind of spiritual and political awakening in America. And so I don't want to lump everyone, you know, in the same camp. But we did see people storm the Capitol and pray as they did so while at the same time kind of breathe out murderous threats against people who they hope to assassinate, which was Very peculiar. Very, very peculiar. Yeah. Okay, next. Sixth one. So as a result of that, right, these weird clashes of iconography where we prefer the icon over Christ. And I want to be cautious here because I want to be respectful. You're such a pastor, Ross. <laughs> I love this. I'm like thinking all the things I actually want to say, but I'm like, okay, Ross. Okay, pastor, go for it. Yeah. Well, because of all that, it justifies and indeed glorifies leadership that is anything like Jesus, right? And then we can pretend that those leaders are doing Jesus' bidding in the world. And so they're mm. excused from his standard of ethic. Because we want the stronger leadership and rule and reign, because we've conflated these two ideas, we'll justify leaders in Jesus' name mm. who look nothing at all like Jesus Christ. Yeah. I think that's so far maybe one of the scariest for me as a leader. Yeah. Because I think that would be one of my greatest fears yeah. is to continue leading without following yeah. Jesus, yeah. you know? And yeah. so, and then to have people around you yeah. celebrate that yeah. is a scary place to be. 
totally scary. And, you know, that's why you need good accountability and humility and openness, all the things that I don't see in the lives of many political leaders. Yeah. And again, the pushback would be, Jamie, that some would say, but in the political sphere, we don't need a pastor, right? We need a leader. I'd go, fine, don't pretend they're a Christian. <laughs> don't mix all these ideas in together. Don't pretend that they're God's blessed or anointed person. They're just, they're a strong man. That's fine. Okay, if that's what you want. But let's not pretend they're something that they're not. I agree 100%. I think that was one of the things that was so disheartening for me during our past elections was I had said, a th you know, a thousand times privately with friends and then maybe even publicly on this show, I don't know, that in America we have the right. You can vote for whoever you want to vote for. Sure. That's how we set it up. It's yeah. a beauty. You can do whatever you want. But it was disturbing for me to hear people say, I'm going to vote for this political candidate because of their character Right. when I could see no good character. Right. But I am totally for you tell me you want to vote for a candidate because of their policies, whatever. because yeah. of their leadership, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But this is right when we start to yeah. – and you know what? That's, that's interesting, that statement, because we start to excuse it. 100%. So I honestly don't think a lot of Christ followers would say, well, this – whatever. It doesn't have to be a presidential race, sure. governor, whatever. Yeah. I think they could look at their character and say, okay, well, that's not great. That's yeah. not great yeah. But he says he's a Christian, so let's go for it. And I think that is where – I can see this so much in the last couple of years here in America. You see how it's all then tied back into that eschatological thought then again of like, no, but this is God's man for mm. this moment to save us from this fictitious enemy, yeah. right? As if the principalities and powers that are described in the world, that their only purpose in the world right now is to destroy America. Yeah. When maybe some of their best work has been the establishment of what we know as America. That's exactly right. We had a conversation. Do you know Scott Sauls? Yes. Yeah. I just adore Scott Sauls. I, I one day I want to be Scott Sauls. <laughs> we all want to be Scott Sauls <laughs> when we grow up. But he was on the show in February and had some of these same conversations yeah. about just maybe the best thing for America would be that we lose some of these quote-unquote rights that we think we're fighting for as a Christian nation, you know? And it was just a really great conversation that kind of be a great one for people to listen to after our conversation if you haven't already. Yeah, yeah. 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 And Scott okay. is significantly smarter than me, so he definitely should listen to him after because he'll Scott correct all of, uh, all of my nonsense. So. Seventh one, we're nearly there, Jamie. This is like a long sermon at this time. I am loving so, it. <laughs> this is an interesting one. And again, I want to be cautious and respectful. I think there's a plethora of views here that may be valid. But what I do see in this and what I've seen in this across the world, wherever I've seen Christian nationalism rear its head, has been a strong affinity and identity with Old Testament Israel. Mm. As if, in this instance, American Christians are the elect people of God, attempting to build or rebuild a temple for God's habitation in the world right here in the USA. This means that the danger of this is that the ethic for this people is formed through out-of-context instruction to the people living in Canaan, mm -hmm. right? Uh, for example, we really want a theocracy or we want ethnic purity because those mm -hmm. things are there written right. in the Old Testament, right. right? Or we want the conquest of others for the flourishing of the nation rather than being formed by anything that looks like the ethic given to the sojourners and the exiles yeah. in the New Testament. This might be a question that would take a whole episode in itself, so forgive me if if you're like, Jamie, we don't have time for this. <laughs> Where does that come from that, and I mean kind of from the Bible as well, but where does someone come to that idea of we in America are like 
Israel God's chosen people? Where, yeah. How do we get there? Yeah, I think there's a healthy identification with the people that I see actually in a number of groups, right? So not just in Christian nationalism. People identify themselves with the people of Israel in the liberation story, for okay. instance, mm-hmm. right? And so where people brought from slavery yeah. into freedom. And you get that in the African-American church tradition. And, and there's a lot of that impulse that's, that's really healthy and good. Where we go astray is then saying, but here's how we're not like those people, Mm. right? We have the New Testament as well to teach us. No, no, now you're going to be sojourners and exiles who wander in the wilderness. That's how you're like them. You're going to wander in the wilderness, (laughs) which is the world, and you're going to have to be a good witness to them like those people were yeah. to. So I think there's a good impulse, good desire that isn't then wrapped in a good biblical theology that prevents people from seeing the fullness of the picture. Okay, it's interesting. Okay, number eight. eight. All right, gosh, these are getting complex, sorry. <laughs> National righteousness and flourishing is seen primarily through a lens of purity as a marker for faithfulness. Let me, let me explain that. This leads to people connecting the health of the country primarily to issues like uh, sexual purity and morality and any kind of outward display of moral purity on a national level. And they end up being more concerned about that than they are about issues like justice, fairness, and even a reputation of national kindness. Okay, so go explain this for us because I'm hearing it. I'm like, Purity, God wants purity. So so great, yeah. But when we see the nation as the kingdom, then we want the nation to behave in a way that we see as pure, which is actually Paul teaches us not to do that in the church. So model purity for people. You don't need to have the expectation that your surrounding nation behaves in that way. And then we see all signs of blessing because of that and all signs of curse as a lack of that. So we go, oh, why is America divided today? Well, the issue must be sexual immorality Mm -hmm. in the nation, right? Instead of in the church, Mm -hmm. because we see sexual immorality rampant in the church, in and amongst the leaders who are calling the nation to be more sexually moral. And we say, that's the problem. We don't maybe stop and say like, well, maybe it's because we're really unjust, mm. you know, that we're seeing some of these things play out in our nation. So It's interesting, too. Like, that one's interesting for me, too, because in the last couple of years, we have seen so much moral failure by leaders who are the ones that would be saying, God is judging our nation because of our moral failure. And yet, give us a couple years, and we see their moral failure. That's, a, again... A whole nother conversation. That's another episode. But that is, would you say, this idea that they're trying to bring to the table of, we need to get ourselves together, America, or God's going to punish us. Yes. But yet they don't have their own heart. 100%. 100%. Purity together. Which, in my mind, is must be part of the reason why we obsess over these issues because we know that they plague us. Mm. And so we obsess over controlling others with the same issues because we know we're out of control on these exact same things. And instead of cleaning up house in our own dark hearts mm-hmm. and in our own leadership structures and in our own churches, we want to then place that on the nation and expect unbelievers to behave like believers. That's right, yeah. And believers aren't even doing it. Right. Which then unbelievers are looking at the church going, I don't understand yeah. what you guys are for or against 100%. because I don't even see it. Yeah. So I have a high moral call to purity in the church, yeah. starting with me. Right. You know, the nation's uh, sexual ethic is, is something but I don't think it's the primary thing that's confounding the work of God in and amongst the nations today. Love it. Okay, yeah. number nine. Nine. You'll see hugely selective Bible quoting for the advance <laughs> of an ideology because the Bible turns into some sort of mic-dropping tool of power and assertion rather than the living word of God. So, for instance, you'll see lots of quotes justifying 
online anger and out- outrage about Jesus turning over tables, but not many about how the, you know, the meek are blessed and inherit the earth. You'll see lots of quotes from Romans 13 about submitting to leaders when it's the elected leader we like, when it's not the elected leader we like, and we don't hear from Romans 13 That's a whole bunch. Right. So it becomes yeah. super selective. Right? Romans 13, like, you know, like every four or eight years That's sounds correct. great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Money must submit, but not now. <laughs> yeah, not yeah, now. yeah. Exactly, exactly. Okay, I like that. I can see that for sure. Number 10. Last one. You see the prevalence, and this is ironic because it's what of a lot of people who I see in this camp trying to prevent, but you'll see a prevalence of a victim mentality based on conspiracy theory. Mm. And so the hidden world of warfare that the Bible clearly speaks of, we know there is this hidden war, mm-hmm. right, that's going on, there's principalities mm-hmm. and power, but it becomes a cosmic game of nation building. Mm. And then we start to look for hints that build up a worldview of how we're actually the victims of this grand narrative that's happening in the right. world. Because when we're victims, then we get to act in a more defensive and hostile manner. That's a lot, Ross. <laughs> Add a few more. I refined those to 10, but that's enough for today. Wait, you have more? (laughs) I'm working on some more. (laughs) Here's my question. I think that, you know, I'm listening to this and going, yes, yes, yes. I mean, like, you know, I'm like, Ross, I love everything you're saying, all the things. This is hard news for some people. And so what is your encouragement for someone who is listening going, man, I've had so much tension against this idea because I have felt like this is the person listening. I have felt like if someone talks about Christian nationalism, then they think I don't love America or they think I'm not a Christian. And so if someone's hearing this going, wow, I feel a little bit convicted that maybe I have been doing number four or number seven, what's your encouragement to them? from a pastor as a follower of Jesus? You know, I think the church has been out-discipled in this space. And so where people have felt identity with the tribe is because of genuine discipleship and community that they haven't found in the church. And we've got to press back into church spaces where we can actually have safe conversations again. Those only happen in really gospel-saturated and deep friendships of trust. And those are the places to have these conversations. I wouldn't recommend putting these 10 points out on Facebook and asking your friends to comment. What it results <laughs> Good in Good luck is, with that. <laughs> yeah, just more echo chambers, yeah. more anger. Yeah. Here's why this clown from South Africa is wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure I am in many areas. But it doesn't actually result in any change. Yeah. And so if people want to change, change happens in the hard work of Christian discipleship and loving relationship. Mm, It's so good. You know, one of the things that I hear a lot of people say about the happy hour is because we've been having hard conversations on here for seven years, is that their eyes have been open to a lot of things. And so I think it's helpful for them to listen to you and I discuss this. And then, like you said, go find a a trusted friend that you can talk through this with together and not just online. Ross, you mentioned casually earlier about the swastika (laughs) in your front yard. I remember when that happened, Aaron called me and told me, And I literally, my stomach felt sick, and it was your yard, not mine, but my stomach felt sick and sad. Can you tell me what happened? How did you and Sue walk through that? Did you talk to your kids about it? Give give me the thing. Yeah. So I wrote about this, if anyone wants to read about it. So I wrote about how we processed this as a family and what led up to it. So um, I've got a little blog with about four readers, three of whom are are my mom from different (laughs) accounts, but you can go to rosslester.com and check out our how we process it as a family. But what happened is every Thursday, I write a pastoral letter to our congregation. And Thursday happened to fall after Wednesday the 6th. And so I was truly traumatized by what I saw on January the 6th. And as a way to try to process that in community, wrote a letter to our congregation about, hey, I'm seeing so many roots of Christian nationalism here. Let's be cautious, right? Let's be careful. That Sunday made some 
really, I thought, watered-down statements in the introduction to my sermon on January 10th. I listened to it and was like, I don't know what. Yeah, I mean, I actually, you know, I said way less than I wanted to say. Okay. Okay. And that day it snowed then mm-hmm. in Austin. So left church, snowing like crazy. And at about 10 at night, we had this magical snow day with our kids. I just got the sense that something was off um, in our front yard, which is hard to describe. I just, for some reason, I got up and walked to the front door. I just felt, hey, something's not right. Mm-hmm. And as I opened the front door, there's a 12 foot by 12 foot schwarzenegger, a schwarzenegger carved out of the snow right at our front door. And it was really traumatic. And I walked back inside and went and called Sue. And I was like, what am I looking at here? Tears just filled her eyes. I felt super nauseous. And we were just really sad. And to be honest, at first, really afraid. I suddenly started to think, wait, is this person still around? What is happening? Is my family a target? But there was a really beautiful moment when Sue stood with me outside in the snow. And we took a rake and just raked over that huge swatch sticker. And just thought, like, this is what Jesus does for us. He takes all of our hate all of our prejudice, all of our sin, and he covers it over with something like fresh snow. And so we covered over that massive sign in our yard and just, I mean, I get teary because I think this is, this is what Jesus does for me. He takes the worst of me and he hides it and he covers it. And so it ended up being this really beautiful gospel picture, but also a massive wake-up call to our family of there's going to be cost um, in, in combating the, the principalities and powers that have grabbed hold of so many hearts in this beautiful land. Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry that that happened to you and your family, for sure. Is the cost worth it? I mean, Jamie, if the, you know, what I thought of on that day is that that's nothing compared to the beatings and the slander that so many have, have had to face and the hatred and the outrage and the genuine violence. This was a cowardly act. It was so cowardly. Mm-hmm. But some people have been faced with actual physical brutality. Many have. And so, you know, I just think relative to them, I go, well, what a small price to pay. And yeah, it's worth it for truth telling. But that's what I want to do. I want to tell the truth, but I don't want to build a platform to myself. So that's where I don't trust my own heart. Because mm. sometimes I'm going to want to slam dunk on other people. And that's not truth telling. That's platform building. And so I want to be a gentle truth teller. And if there's pushback to that, you know, God be praised. So be it. Yeah. Ross, well, I'm grateful for the truth telling that you and your family are committed to. I'm grateful that you're in America. <laughs> and it's like, It's so good because you do have this outsider view, but also you've lived through a historic time in your own home country that has maybe even prepared you for this time here. And, you know, we're grateful for that. So we're going to put all the links to your blog, everything in the show notes. And so people can go find it um, and follow you to everything that you're doing on your blog. Okay. What are you loving these days? What are you reading? I just revisited a couple of old books. I like to read a new book and then go back and reread something that, that moved me previously. So just last night, I actually finished rereading uh, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, which is a book on writing and it creativity. So it's so good. good. It's so good. Okay. I read this years ago. Is this the book where at the end she talks about a lighthouse and how a lighthouse doesn't I feel like that there's a story that she tells about how a lighthouse just shines light and the boats mm-hmm. come to it. Is that mm-hmm. in that book or not? It's, it's in there, yeah. But it's, I don't think it's right at the end. Okay, so, okay. Yeah. Anyhow. I mean, she's got so many brilliant you know, pieces of imagery and they're just kind of off the cuff. You know, They're yeah. short. She doesn't dwell in them, but amazing. I highly recommend that book. It's yeah, really good. It's fun. I mean, the language is colorful. So if you're sensitive to that, just be warned before you send me an email. But I, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is. So. Do you read all your bad emails that you get? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you do? I do, I do. I've had a, a response since I was a young pastor of like, I'll respond to everybody. 
And so if you want to engage with me, I'll engage with you. But we'll do so on the terms of the gospel. So I try to respond in a Christ-like manner to anyone who ever reaches out. Good for you. Well, <laughs> it doesn't like, always work out. <laughs> I'd be like, please stop emailing me because I can't handle the criticism. Okay, so bird by bird, what are you and Sue watching? Are y'all TV watchers? Yeah, we're watching a show called The Chef Show, which is John Favreau I'm and sure Roy Choi. Ivy knows about it. Yeah, so it's based off of a movie called The Chef, okay, which is kind of like this cult cooking movie a few years ago. And now they're traveling around and revisiting a lot of the places. And Austin's one of them. They go to Franklin's and okay. then they cook a bunch of different things together. What I love about it is it's actually really about the friendship between two yeah. dudes. The cooking's kind of by the by. Yeah. It is wonderful. It's so fun. We've struggled to find anything to watch that doesn't make us super depressed at the moment. <laughs> oh, so, my gosh. So this is our pure escapism. We watched The Chef Show. I know. I watched a documentary the other day about a man who killed everyone in his family. I'm like, why am I watching this kind of TV? Uh, it's, it's rough. I did. I just finished the Michael Jordan documentary. Have okay. you seen it? I have not. And I didn't grow up watching basketball. So there's less of an icon in the person of Michael Jordan to me. And so there is a reason I need to go and educate myself and watch it. Well, I will say this about that documentary. Aaron does not watch sports. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's ever watched an entire sporting event by, you know, by any means, but he liked the documentary cool. because just hearing from Michael Jordan, I mean, he is like the greatest yeah. basketball player that's ever lived. Yeah. But some LeBron fans just got super mad with you, Jamie. So. Well, well, okay, that's true. <laughs> I'm not really into basketball, but I will say it was intriguing to watch because yeah. I think I would say this if Michael Jordan was sitting here. He's also quite arrogant and cocky, mm -hmm. and you see that a mm -hmm. lot. And mm -hmm. it's interesting to see his personality and how he was on basketball teams. So I love realism like that uh -huh. i love looking at the complexity of people and going like most people are a mixed bag yeah that's okay yeah. yeah yeah so it's good ross thank you so much thank you for engaging in a difficult conversation but it's a conversation that is good for us as followers of jesus because even if you're sitting here going i think ross this is all heresy he's dumb this is the worst thing sure. ever i think it's good for us to think and engage in these conversations you know i feel like i've been saying a lot lately is so many christians can just be lazy in their thinking yeah. and i just want to encourage people to be thinkers yeah. and to engage conversations. And so you did that for us today. And so thank you. Thanks, Jamie. Okay, guys, such a great episode. I'm grateful for Ross and his humility and his leadership. The way he leans in to lead my particular church here in Austin, Texas has been such a joy to my heart. Check out Ross's webpage where he blogs very thoughtful, very thought-provoking uh, blog posts about current culture and American church. I think you're going to really like it. And again, if you miss out on his 10 things, we got you. JamieIvy.com. JamieIvy.com slash HH375. This is episode 375. So that's where you can find that. Friends, thank you for listening. Listen, if you loved this episode or any episode, the best way that people find out about our show is by you telling your friends. So would you be willing to share this episode with a friend or two? Just text them over the link. Just tell them, hey, go listen to this. I think you'll like it. And again, thank you for those of you that are going to go leave a review wherever you bought our book compliment. Really grateful for that. Friends, have a great week. We'll be back here on Friday with Richard Louie, a great interview you don't want to miss. Today's show was mixed and mastered by the team at Podshaper. Show notes are written by Abby Castell. Music is created by Matt Graham. The show is produced by Lindsay Sweeney. And I'm your host, Jamie Ivey. Have a great week. Have a happy hour with a friend. And I'll see you back here on Friday. <laughs>